0: and you shall call his name Jesus he will be great and will be the son of the most high and the lord god will give to him the throne of his father david and he will reign over the house of jacob forever and his kingdom there will be no end and mary said to the angel how will this be since i am a virgin and the angel answered her the holy spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you therefore the child will be born the child to be born will be called holy
1: This is the first time in nine years I haven't played in the, the Christmas band. So I'm just over here getting all emotional and all that. Man, not having to worry about chords, and I kind of wish I was. All right. So um, there are two of the Gospels that record the Christmas story Matthew and Luke. John and Mark um, don't say a word about it, which is fascinating. And we'll get to that sometime, but not today. Um, in, in the book of Matthew, the, uh, the Christmas story is, is covered really from the perspective of Joseph. In the book of Luke, it's covered really from the perspective of Mary. And there's a reason that each gospel is written completely different, um, from different points of view, with focuses and emphasis on different things. Um, and we're going to get to that as well. It has to do with audience. Um, so, the Gospel of Luke was written uh, in the mid-80s, um, 80s A.D., not like 1980. We didn't just write it. It's not new. Um, and so in the mid-80s A.D., it was a, there, there was a, a particular amount of, of turmoil going on. And all of this, the setting in which a book was written, plays, into a, lot, uh, plays a lot into how it is written and the message that is, that is written inside of it. Um, and so let's talk about the '80s for a second. Um, the '80s, um, there was Judaism was fracturing. Um, Ten years earlier, uh, their their temple had been destroyed. The Romans had basically turned on them, um, on the on the Jewish people. Destroyed their temple, sort of um, forced them into a position they've never been in before. And so the Jews are trying to sort of make friends with the empire again, but at the same time lead a revolt. Um, they know they're going to be crushed. And so they need to sort of change and they need to, the the leaders of the synagogue and stuff, they sort of need to narrow some stuff down so that they can fit nicely into a place that's going to get them less persecution from the Roman Empire, right? Because that's always how you do it. When you're afraid of getting persecuted by the Roman Empire, you just take it over, right? No. Um, And so they decide, well, what we need to do is we need to push some people out that are upsetting the empire, uh, let's see, who in Judaism is, is upsetting the empire the most? Really, the Christians. They were the ones doing it. Up until this point, it had been about 50 years uh, since the resurrection of Jesus, and the church had been growing steadily. But for 50 years or so, Christianity was simply considered a, a sect of Judaism. And then they start saying things like, Jesus is Lord. Um, and everyone else in Rome is like, no, Caesar's Lord. And they're like, no, I think you're mistaken. Jesus is Lord. And this is getting them in a lot of trouble, right? And so, and so they're heading towards this um, sort of clash with the empire, where the empire is getting ready to start uh, persecuting the Christians. And so Titus charges in at about 81. Um, and there's some decisions to be made. And so the Christians find themselves without a past, basically, because th- this religion, this. This long 1800 year old tradition of Judaism that they've been part of, rich history of God leading people and growing them into where they were, and then revealing the Messiah to them. This was their story. And now the Jewish people were like, You are not us. Get out. Your thoughts are different. We don't like where you're going with your message about the Messiah. You are not one of us. This is getting very difficult between us. It's kind of embarrassing. We're, we're trying to impress the empire here. Mom and Dad are mad, and we're like, that's not our friend. And so they're kicking them out. And so the Christians find themselves in a really, really difficult position because now they have lost their past, their history, and um, they know that the Roman Empire is now crashing down upon them, coming down and, and starting to persecute them. And then we, get, we get books like First and Second Peter written in persecution. We get Revelation. Um, in the 90s and so we have all kinds of of trouble ahead they know that they're going to be rounded up they're going to be killed so their past is ruined they don't know whether or not not this is still even their story anymore and their future is terrifying to them they're at a place where it is the apocalypse this is this is real persecution this is dangerous and scary and they don't fit anywhere they've been rejected by them this is not going to work out well for them they don't think this is the end what are we going to do? And so it's into this audience that Luke writes the gospel of Luke, the gospel according to Luke. It's not just that you need to understand the context of sort of the story of Mary and Joseph and understand that context. You also need to understand the context of the people 50 years later for whom the book was written to. And it was being written because, you know, the the apostles are dying out and we have to preserve these stories of theirs. And so this is written to them, and there's a specific thing that he wants to write to them. You see, ancient history, especially first century history, wasn't written the way that we write history now. We write history now with exactly what happened. We're going to write it all down, and so anyone can look at it and see um, who was right, who was wrong, from an objective standpoint. We, we write, we we try to write objective history. Um, literal objective history wasn't really invented until about 500 years after the fall of Rome. So what we're writing in the first century is not objective history. It is history with a point with a message. And it's not dishonest history. It's the way it was done then. And so Luke is writing this history of Jesus. And he's going to write it in a specific way to the Christians in the first century because he has a message for them. Those who have lost their past, who are terrified about their future, who don't know where they belong and don't know how to respond. And he's going to start with God entering into the world. He's not going to start where a couple of the other gospels start with just Jesus teaching and preaching. He's going to start at the very beginning, the situation into which God enters into the world. And that's where we find ourselves here. So he's going to start off with two stories that are back to back. So he starts off sort of like, hey, this is Luke. Here's why I'm writing. Um, I'm writing to a certain person. I've been hired to do this certain thing, do some research and write a book about it. Um, And then he gets down to business and he tells two stories right off the bat, back to back. And um, there's two different characters in these stories. In each story, so there's three characters altogether. There's Zechariah, there's Mary, and there's this angel named Gabriel. And so first up, we have um, we have Zechariah. So Zechariah is serving in the temple. He's a priest. Um, he's a very very old priest. and He's in his late 90s. And um, there's five thousand priests at this time in 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 um, Jewish history because about five thousand came back from exile. Um, and so here we find ourselves with a whole bunch of priests. And not a lot of temple, um, and so this was probably the one and only time that this priest Zechariah, in his entire ninety-year life, is going into the temple. So, for the very first time in his life, he gets the honor of offering what's called the incense offering. You take a bunch of incense, you walk into the altar, you walk into the, 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 the deep place of the temple and you, you put it on the altar there and it billows up with smoke and it's a sweet smell to God and, it, and, and the people outside pray and, and, and then the smoke billows out, he opens the curtain, smoke comes out and he steps out of the curtain. It's a very dramatic entrance. He's like, here I am. They're like, yeah. So um, we find ourselves here in this part of the story. It goes like this. Uh, Luke chapter nine, verse one, verse, uh, verse, Luke chapter one, verse nine and 10. According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by a lot, that's like a rolling of the dice, so it's all by chance, uh, to enter into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So you have a whole bunch of people gathered around the door, and this is really important. They're praying for the guy, what he's about to do, because people have been known to be killed doing this kind of thing. It's a very dangerous thing, entering the temple of the Lord. Um, And they're praying outside for his safety, they're praying um, sort of prayers of repentance and... And sort of making their hearts right with God and offering reverence to this holy God who's about to see a human being, one of them, in his presence. Um, and so they're out there. And, and so there's an interesting law in, um, in Leviticus chapter 19 where it says, when you go, he's talking to the priests, and the law says, when you go into the Holy of Holies, you must not linger, quote, lest you make the people of Israel terrified, right? So it's, like it's a really scary thing. So you're supposed to just like run in, do your thing, lots of smoke, run out. Ah! Oh, still alive. All right. So, um, so they're outside praying for him as he goes in. And then you skip down a little bit and it says this in verse 21. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. So he's taken a while. We're getting nervous. All right. He's not getting chatty, is he, with God? That's not good. Uh, verse 22. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. So he comes out He's in there for a while. They're terrified. He finally comes out, and he can't talk. And they're like, oh, my goodness. He, he either said something or whatever, but he's not talking anymore. He's in trouble. Um, he's seen a vision from God. So what was it that happened in there? What was it that he experienced in there to have this kind of reaction? Well, we find it in verse 16 and 17. It says this. Um, it basically talks about, I'm going to paraphrase a lot of this because we don't have a lot of time. It's Christmas, right? Well, I mean, it's a week from Christmas, but it's coming fast, right? Um, and so, what happens is, he apparently walks in, and there's this angel named Gabriel there. And he's like, What's up? And Zachariah's like, Wow, there's somebody in here. Um, and uh, he's terrified. And there's this conversation that happens with Zachariah. And Zachariah says, I mean, sorry, with Gabriel. And Gabriel says, Hey, you're going to have a son? I know you're old. Stop laughing. You're going to have a son, and this son is going to be great. He's going to do good things. He's going to lead, prepare God's people for the hearts of God. And here's what he says: and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So, um, you're going to have a kid. It's going to be a big deal. He's going to do big, big things. And prepare the way of the Lord. Now, the very next story. So this story ends very abruptly. And then it tells another story right underneath it. And you can pick that up in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel of Gabriel, same guy, was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. So the same angel um, appears to him, gives him a message. You're going to have a kid. It's going to be really important. Boom. Disappears. Goes to Mary. Hey, You're going to have a kid. It's going to be very important. And here's what he says. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, this is all very important. Because remember, the audience, Jewish Christians. And so we have Mary. This is the reason he's telling Mary's story. Because she is of the line of David. And when you're going to write to the Greeks, you're going to tell Joseph's story, right? And so we have Mary's story here because this is her line. And it says, you're going to have a child and this child is going to be the Messiah. Now, um, this is a big deal uh, for lots of reasons. If you're the original audience, you will have already heard many, many, many things in this story that is incredibly important to you and the situation in which you find yourself in. First off... Uh, we need to talk about the person who showed up and gave them the message. Luke is the only writer of the Gospels who names the angel. The angel's name is Gabriel, he calls him. And this is really important. Um, There were four angels in uh, Jewish theology, in the ancient stories in which the Jews told. Um, There was um, Raphael, there's Michael, the Ninja Turtle angels. Um, There is... Uriel, the angel of uh, the light-bearing light angel, I think it was. Um, and then there is uh, Gabriel. Each of these angels had a different reason for showing up in different stories, but but their reason was always like their particular thing. Kind of like how, you know, Michelangelo always shows up with the nunchucks, right? Um, each angel has a specific reason that they show up and a specific thing that they do when they show up in, in ancient Jewish stories. Um... And so this is a big deal. So first off, you're a first, you're a first century Jewish Christian in the 80s, and you're terrified. You've lost your past. You've lost your future. And so someone comes to you and says, hey, I've been speaking with the apostles. I want to tell you your story. I want to tell you where all this started. Um, here's the situation G- Jesus was born into. There's this angel, Gabriel. And what's going on in your mind is all the stories of your past are being taken and used to usher in this new beginning this new thing that is going to happen and you're wondering do I throw it all away should I be bitter about what has happened do I reject them the way they have rejected me or do I find hope in the story of God using my old story to come and deliver the news to me that things are changing and we're going into this new thing what do I do and when you hear the story of how all of this started, this is possibly the most encouraging thing that could be said to you, the angel Gabriel. The second thing that is really important about the angel Gabriel showing up in the story is that uh, in the same way that Uriel was the light-bearing angel, um, Gabriel was the angel of perseverance. And this is really important for the audience to receive because as if, it's as if God is saying, hey, Um, You're going to persevere here. This is not the end. What you are experiencing is not the end. What you are experiencing is everything changing. What you are experiencing is a new beginning. You had that. It was good for a time. We have transcended it. We don't reject it. We include it in what is going on next. Because God is doing something absolutely new. And it is because of where you have come from that you will head into this new thing. And you will persevere. And so the presence of Gabriel in the story talking to Mary is incredibly important detail for the first century listeners of this story, of their story, of the Christ being born, the divine being, coming into the world, the Messiah. It starts off with, it's okay, we're going to persevere. We're going to push through this. That's incredibly important. So there's this album I've been listening to um, whenever I'm writing sermons, reading books. I like to have music playing. Um, I guess it gives my monkey brain something to do while my lizard brain is trying to learn something. Um, and so I like to keep something going on in the background. So I, I, I put on like a lot of instrumental stuff. And sometimes I go down these weird dark holes of YouTube and find some weird, awesome instrumental music. And so I found this guy about two years ago, and I've been really into it, listening to it a lot. His name is Nils From I'm assuming he's German, N-I-L-S, Nils, who knows, From. Um, so if you're looking for a baby name, N- Nils. Um, and his music's all piano, but it's the most creative piano music I've ever heard in my life. And his last record he did was vastly different than anything else he's done, um, mainly because there, there was a way he had to record it. The situation that he found himself in, I don't know the full situation, but he's apparently in this apartment, this small apartment, and he's got to record an album with piano. If you don't know, pianos are exceedingly loud. They're loud things. When you hit them, they make a lot of sound. Um, And the neighbors get upset. And so he can't record this record. He's working during the day. He's got to make a record at night. And he can't make the record at night because he's got neighbors. And so what is he going to do? So he decides, well, I'm going to write. I'm going to practice. And so he takes a bunch of felt covers the strings with felt, some dampers, finds everything he can do to mute the piano so that he can practice playing. And basically, when you hit, you can get real close and you can hear a little, little bit of notes, but not much. Um, and so then he's like, well, I bet I could find a way to, to write and still practice at night without waking the neighbors. And so he takes a microphone, a condenser mic, and puts it right up on the strings. Um, and he gets some big headphones. It says specifically in the recording process, he says, big headphones, he says, and that's how you should listen to it on big headphones, because that's how I recorded it. So he puts on big headphones and he turns the gain up really loud, and what he hears is something totally different than he has ever heard before. I'm going to play it for you, so you can hear the piano like normal, but then you hear it sounds like a snare drum, and then there's these times where he's rocking playing the music and you hear the floorboards creak, and it makes another, it makes like sort of a beat to it. And there's these times where he slides his hand up and you hear sort of a squeak on the ivory there on his hand and the more he plays, the more he realizes oh this is different Like because I'm forced into this position of silence of being quiet and listening deeper than I've ever listened before because I've been forced to change and not play it like I could before I am beginning to hear things I've never heard before he had not been forced in his position he never would have heard it and so he writes about this record and he says um he says the way that he started writing it was that he would start a song but he wouldn't write the end of it so that when he recorded it he wouldn't know where it was going to go he would just sort of listen to the music and the piano itself and let it and so here's what he says if you decide not to finish your composition but rather keep them as open fragments you leave yourself open you discover new possibilities I played by these possibilities. I made sure that the felt between the strings and the hammers of the piano quieted the instrument so that it whispered. And I hear myself breathing and panting the scraping sounds of the piano action against the creaking um, of my wooden floorboards, all equally as loud as the music. And it was then that I discovered that my piano actually sounds beautiful when it is dampened love that. And so the music, he actually called it after what he had to do. He called the record Felt. Because it was all about muting everything and seeing what else we can hear down to. You can fade that out for me. So this is really important because a lot of people, when they're up against a situation like this where things cannot continue as they were, hey, this isn't going to work. You need to change what you're doing. And you're like, well, this is what I've always done. I don't know how to do anything different. A lot of people need to know how. They need to hear, well, what do you want me to do? Give me the answers. I need certain, certainty. I need to know what I'm supposed to do next. And then others just kind of say, well, we'll make do with whatever happens. It's going to work out. I'm going to trust. And so that brings me to the, to the response of the two characters in the story, both of whom have been given incredibly different news than they ever expected in their lives, that absolutely changed the direction of their lives, a 90-year-old man and like a a young teenage girl. And this is important to understand for her as well, Um, what this meant for her, a baby in her life. I'm going to get to that in a minute. I want to look at Zechariah's response first. He says this, and Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man, my wife is advanced in years, and the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So the question that Zachariah has upon hearing how everything is about to be different, you're going to go in a different direction, your life is about to change, um, he says, well, how, how shall I know this? How shall I know this? If you read some other, um, some other um, variations on the text, other versions, um, most of them translated, this is the ESV, most of them translated as, um, oh man, uh, hold on a second. Uh, most of them translate it as, as in sort of like, uh, oh no, how can I be sure? I had another thing in my head, but it's gone. am um, not going to go there. So how can I be sure? So how can I know? How can I be sure? This is, This is an interesting response because this this is is a bit of like a request for sort of action. How can I be sure? I have to know. I have to be certain. Um, I need answers. What do you want me to do? Is there some certain schools I need to send him to? Because he's going to be really important. He's going to be a big leader. He's got to be well read, right? And so uh, we need to get him to the right places to get him educated. Um, We have to get him all the right things that he needs to do this thing that you say he's going to do. What's my part? What can I do? How can I know for certain that this is going to happen um, and that this is not just going to sort of fade away? I don't want to mess this up. How can I be sure? God silences him. He says, you really need to shut up and listen more. All right. And then he goes to Mary. Mary has a totally different response. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This was a big deal for Mary because Mary was actually a member of this group of women called the Anoem. It basically is a phrase that means the faithful remnant. Um, I think I talked about it last year, Christmas time. Um, and the faithful remnant, they were, they were this group of, of highly devout Jewish women. And they would gather on the, on the, on the, uh, the steps of the temple and they would... Um, pray the Jewish prayers every day. They would pray for um, freedom for the oppressed. They would pray for God's kingdom to come, that God would rule in this world. They were a highly respected people. But now this angel storms into her life and says, hey, your identity as a uh, highly impressive, very sought after, um, um, very uh, respected Jewish leader among women. Um, this future that you have in the temple, in the synagogue and, and leading other women, um, this, is, this is done. You're going to have a son and the son's going to be the Messiah is going to lead people to God. And so instantly in a moment, her identity, her past, her spiritual past, her spiritual future, it's all gone. She has no idea what is going to happen. As the story goes on, she actually goes sort of, um, scholars argue she goes into hiding for about three months at a cousin's house. Um, her husband has to be sort of convinced to be betrothed to her and They have to travel off for a consensus that came at a very appropriate time. Um, Everything was in jeopardy for her. And so you're a first century Christian. And Luke comes to you and says, hey, I want to tell you your story. I know the situation you're in and I want to tell you how we got here. I want to tell you the story of Jesus. I want to tell you how God enters into the world. God enters into the world um, and sometimes when he does, you lose your identity. And you lose your past because when God enters into the world it means things it's time to change it means it means we're going in a new direction and it's terrifying and the fact is some people are going to stand up and say well how can I be sure I need certainty I have to know where this is heading I have to know everything and God kind of says silence for those kind of people what I need is for you to listen and I need you to look back at me and you to say I'm your servant let it be to me according to your word I'm going to move forward and so what we have here is Luke telling the people, you're not going to be bitter about your past. It's going to be, it's, it's going to be this thing that sort of ushers in your new future. You're going, to, you're going to be glad about the growth that you've had. Look where you were. Look where you are now. There's been growth, and you're going to celebrate that. Second, uh, you're not going to reject them the way that they rejected you because it's because of them that you are where you are now. So you're not going to look back and say, well, I don't need you either. You're going to say, well, thank you, though for what you have been to me. And you're going to look at your future and you're going to say, I don't really know what's going to come, but here I am today and I can look back and I can see how I got here and God's going to lead me that way. I am the Lord's servant and that's all I'm going to be. This is new beginnings. This is a message of hope. Luke is saying, this is not the end. This is the beginning of the new thing. It's not the end. Your past, it's useful. God's using it to bring you a new future. Your rejection, that you've experienced in your life, it's useful. God's going to use it to show you that he enters through and into those who are rejected. I mean, look at all 12 of Jesus' disciples. They were rejects, all of them. That's why they were fishermen. That's why they were tax collectors. One was a zealot, basically a murderer. Jesus chose these men who had been absolutely rejected. And then later on, you see him sitting around a table and who's he pouring into? Who's he showing love to? There's there's zealots and there's tax collectors and there's prostitutes and there's... All the people of ill repute in Jesus' day, and Jesus says, You, you're at the bottom. I think it's time for you to have a new beginning. Because this is when God enters into the story. And so let's just for a second take our eyes off of the first century audience and let's look at us. I don't know what your year's been like, I don't know what you've gone through, Um, I don't know what's coming in your future. Um, I don't know what change you've undergone. I don't know if for some reason, there's some reason you can't go back where you came from. Whatever that is. Maybe you've outgrown it. Maybe you've been rejected and kicked out of it. Um, Maybe it's just too painful. Um, For whatever reason, maybe you're here and you say, I, I can't be who I was before. It's impossible. It's impossible to go back. I can't do it. And then we come to Christmas. And one of my favorite things about Christmas is it's always right at the end of the year and there's like Christmas and then you have like seven days to sort of like bathe in that and ponder the meaning of it all. Once like once the joy of like the presents wears off, which is usually by lunchtime, um, then you've got like six and a half other days to ponder. So what is this before this new year starts? And so I don't know what year 2016 has been. I don't know how much pain you're in. I don't know what you've gone through. Mine's been rather difficult. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. And then Merry Christmas is the word you hear, and you're like, oh yes, it's real Merry. But 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 Luke looks at his people and he says, no, I I don't think you understand what the birth of Christ is. This is a new beginning. We're starting over, and you're not going to go back to where you were. We're going to head into this new thing, and that's what the Christmas story is. It's a new beginning. And that's the way it starts. And that's the first thing Luke wants his audience to hear. And so whatever it is that you're going through, whenever you hear Merry Christmas, what you should be hearing is, hey, all things are new. New beginning. We can't go back. We don't know what's coming. New beginning. Starting today. Let's be obedient. Let's be honest. Let's be exactly who God is causing us to be and bringing us to be and calling us to be. And so the most appropriate thing I can say is, Merry Christmas to you, all of you. Whatever it is you're going through. New beginning for you, for me, for all of us together. And that's why I get so emotional when I sing that song. Because that's exactly what I need every year right about now. And so the only appropriate response to this is communion. So our communion servers, why don't you guys go ahead and take the elements and spread around the room um, communion is something we do every single week every, sam- every single time we come together um, if you're not familiar with Christian gatherings if you've never taken communion if you're uncomfortable with it, that's totally fine just hang out and observe um, it's nothing fancy there's some bread and there's some wine they're just common things they're just bread and wine actually common is at the root of the word communion but in this moment we're going to inject more meaning into them they're going to represent the broken body of Christ and the spilled blood of Christ. We're going to take a piece of bread, we're going to dip it in the wine or we're going to eat it. Because we are fed somehow and filled up by the broken body of Christ and the blood of Jesus. And so every time we gather together, whatever it is we're going through, we set up the communion table and we say, "Hey, body of Christ broken for you, blood of Christ spilled for you." And we are fed And we as Christians believe that this is the way the healing is brought into the world. We look at Christ on the cross. He tells you what's about to happen, and that it happens. And it's terrible to see and terrible to watch. And then there's this moment of resurrection, and Jesus says, hey, now follow me, because this is how we change things. This is how God enters into the world in brokenness. This is where we will always find him. And so we're going to take communion. If you want to join us, we would love that. I'm going to close this up in a word of prayer. We're going to take communion. We're going to sing some songs. We're going to light some candles, and we're going to rejoice and usher in a new Christmas day. Shall we? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We need you. We need your hope. We need your guidance. Thank you for our, our past, where you've brought us from. Whatever is in store in our future, light the way. Send us um, happily and joyfully into it. Let us simply learn to be obedient and to receive whatever it is that you are bringing to us. Thank you. Um, Remind us that you are changing things, that you are making them new. Whatever it is in our hearts, in our lives that are dead and broken, remind us of resurrection and give us a piece of that. Grant that in our lives. Make everything new for us. Thank you. In your name. Amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.